Welcome back to The Jacobin Show, and of course, happy Bastille Day. I'm Jen Pan, here with Paul Prescott. Paul, how will you be celebrating the storming of the Bastille? You know, I was looking around today for some, like, fortresses to to storm, but they got rid of them, you know? These goddamn developers, they're they're just (laughs) ravaging the fortresses in the city. The real, estate, the real estate developers added again, uh, yeah. yet more reason why we need another French Revolution. Right. <laughs> we need we need a counter-revolution to rebuild them and then another one to... to uh, a revolution them. to take them over. Right. Yep, exactly. Um, so, of course, today we are talking about the French Revolution, as I'm sure you all saw. Our guest is Schlaboy Zizek. Um, full disclosure, we actually pre-recorded an interview with him because, of course, he is in Slovenia, which has... Quite a significant time difference from here, Uh, but it was a great interview. I had a really great time. He is uh, just joyful and uh, extremely smart guest, as usual. Um, I loved talking to him. Yeah, I mean, it's always a a wild ride with him. You never know where it's going to start and where it's going to end. So that, that was a great interview. Actually, let's play a short preview of the interview because he won't be on for a while. Um, But this is what it's like. I just want to know, no hidden preference. Do you prefer me to make a brief statement or it's a pure third degree examination of a potential enemy where you just bombard me with questions? Whatever you like. <laughs> um, we have some questions prepared. So I think I'll just start uh, with okay, kind of the okay. one and then that's let's okay. see where yes. it goes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I did wrote some psychotic notes, readable <laughs> only to me. So you know that the uh, uh, like uh, as an old communist told me when I was young, we communists love spontaneous debates exchanged mm-hmm. with the people. Yeah. But to prevent enemy provocations, the spontaneous debates have to be especially well prepared in advance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was a small taste. Stay tuned for Schlavoy's psychotic notes. Right. And I, I really hope he saved all of his notes because that's got to go in some like library at some point. I would love I would love to read all his notes. Yeah. The Zizek collection. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, again, of course, we will be talking to Zizek a little more about the French Revolution, the legacy of the French Revolution, uh, how Robespierre did nothing wrong, uh, and also the legacy of the Enlightenment. Um, but before we get to that, um, and actually before we make our own comments about the French Revolution, I do want to quickly mention that Jacobin Magazine is having an amazing uh, sale today for Bastille Day. You can get an international print and digital subscription for the low, low price of seventeen eighty nine. See what we did there. And mm. domestic subscriptions are $7.89. Um, so we actually have a link in the description box, which you can click, um, or you can go to Jacobin's site and use the code Bastille Day to get that discount. Don't sleep on this. Um, I'm sure lots of you are uh, readers and subscribers to Jacobin already, 
But of course, you know, Jacobin owes a lot to the French Revolution. Uh, The name Jacobin comes from the French Revolution and also the Haitian Revolution, which we will get to in a little bit. Um, But we also I also want to mention that the upcoming issue of Jacobin is going to be really great. It's on the working class. Uh, This, of course, is a complement to the current issue, which is on the ruling class. That issue had this like obscene gilded gold cover. This issue, it doesn't come through on the screen, but it's it's a shiny red cover. Uh, the red that you see there is is like foil. Um, so definitely subscribe to the print issue. I believe Vivek Chibber is in this, uh, Liza Featherstone, uh, Megan Day, Ronan Burtonshaw, all the faves. So uh, get your subscription. All right. Um, I think uh, now it's time for us to dive into the French Revolution a little bit. Um, As I said, we will get to some of the more substantive legacies of the French Revolution, but I just wanted to kick off with something a little bit lighthearted. I would be remiss if I did not shout out our friend Amber Frost's conception of the dirtbag left. If you are a regular viewer or fan of Chapo Trap House, you've probably heard this before. This is basically her defense of political vulgarity, right? So she makes the argument that uh, vulgarity, the concept of vulgarity, can be used uh, strategically by people on the left. Um, And of course, we see one of the greatest examples of this during the French Revolution, when revolutionaries uh, produced a slew of materials attacking the French monarchy, in particular Marie Antoinette. Amber, uh, of course, includes this iconic image of Marie Antoinette uh, hanging out with an ostrich dick. (laughs) And of course, you can find lots of other extremely uh, vulgar and tasteless materials against the French monarchy from this time period. Um, And Amber writes in her article, uh, let's see, one lesson of the French Revolution is that rudeness can be extremely politically useful. There are arguments to be made over who constitutes a valid target, but when crude obscenity is directed at figures of power, their prestige can be tarnished even in the eyes of the most reverent of subjects. Uh, So we love political vulgarity, especially when it comes to overthrowing the monarchy or getting rid of capitalists. Um, And and again, on a lighthearted note, I I also wanted to bring up one other thing before we get into kind of the meat of the discussion. And um, this has to do with a recent sort of college campus controversy. So a couple weeks ago, um, I just happened to look in the news and I saw that uh, Brandeis University was under fire a little bit because they released an oppressive language list, which included phrases such as picnic, killing it, rule of thumb, walk in. Um, If you go through and read the article, it also included the term people of color because you're supposed to say BIPOC now. Um, And, you know, truth be told, this list wasn't really that big of a deal. It was something the university released and, you know, I'm sure nobody's going to pay attention to it and they have no way of really enforcing it. But predictably, of course, conservatives kind of lost their minds and it became this minor internet scandal. Um, But the thing that really stood out to me was the inclusion of the word picnic. Um, and, and, And what Brandeis said said about the inclusion of this word is this. So they said that uh, the word picnic is often associated with lynchings of Black people in the United States, during which white spectators were said to have watched while eating, referring to them as picnics or other terms involving racial slurs against Black people. Um, And I actually have heard this before. Um, I think that it's a meme that sometimes circulates around social media. Um, I was really racking my brain because I remember a character in a like 
90s or early 2000s teen movie said this. And I, I really can't remember what the movie is. I think it might be She's All That. Um, if you happen to know, if this rings a bell, stick it in the comments because I would love to know. Um, but in any case, the point is in popular culture and just in kind of our collective imaginary, I think this idea that Picnic has uh, racist roots has circulated for a while. Now, it's not true. Uh, Reuters recently released a uh, kind of debunking of this myth. Um, they quoted this guy, Dr. David Pilgrim, who is a historian of the symbols of the Jim Crow era. And what he said was this, the word picnic derives from the 17th century word picnic, a term used to describe a social gathering in which attendees each contributed with a portion of food or another useful item. Uh, that's true. You can, you know, look back to the French texts at that time and you can sort of see where the word picnic uh, kind of germinated. Uh, but the, what the Reuters article doesn't mention is the word actually gained popularity in the wake of the French Revolution. So what happened was, no surprise, uh, prior to the revolution, you know, the public was banned from royal parks and gardens, uh, the most famous of those, of course, being Versailles. And then, of course, you know, once the monarchy is deposed, aka sent to the guillotine, and the rich aristocrats and other members of the nobility are driven out of France, uh, these parks and gardens become open to the public. So you see working class people finally getting to go into the gardens and parks, enjoy them, uh, and yes, gather there to eat food, aka have picnics. Now, how did the word catch on in the Anglophone world? Also because of the French Revolution. So when the uh, French nobility had to flee for their lives from France, a bunch of them ended up in England and they started, you know, putting together these, quote, picnic societies. So that's how the word kind of caught on in the Anglophone world. Um, and, you know, I just want to say this, of course, of all of the things that we mentioned today, this is probably the least important thing to come out of the French Revolution. And the point here is not that the word picnic is inherently righteous or inherently radical. Um, but I, you know, I think that it is important to kind of look at the historical, uh, historical context out of which it arises, right? Because this is a world world shattering historical event. It's a, it's a world-class uprising against uh, inequality and oppression. We of course will get into some of the uh, other consequences of the French Revolution in a little bit. Um, but you know, I, I think I think it's really cool actually that you know in the wake of the revolution, the working class uh, was able to finally uh, you know, enjoy public space, uh, which had not been available to them prior to the revolution. Um, and even, you know, we might not have the word picnic if the rich aristocrats had not been driven out of France and had to take up residence in England and, you know, start these so-called picnic societies. Um, so, oh, and I also, I, I just want to mention, you know, before we move on, and I promise we will in a little bit, um, I, I think that picnics as a concept really represent like leisure time, right? And a break from work. And they represent, you know, a space where we can go and gather with our friends and family. Um, and again, as I said, where we can enjoy public space or what we might call the commons. And this is something that socialists are still fighting for today, right? More, more of that. Um, I mean, I think when we, when you, when you think about the socialist slogan, bread and roses, right? A picnic literally represents both of those things in one fell swoop. Uh, so we here at Jacobin are very pro picnic. And I do want to mention, you know, this idea, or if, if we go back to this kind of 
um, myth or whatever that picnics originated with, uh, you know, Southern lynchings in the Jim Crow era, um, even though that is, you know, not true etymologically speaking, um, you can, of course, find these horrifying photographs from that time period where you see white crowds enjoying, you know, food and drink while a lynching is taking place. So I don't want to discount, you know, that unfortunate and and gruesome history at all. But I think if there's one thing that I would want people to take away from today's episode and also our talk with Schlaboy Zizek, uh, it's that um, we don't have to necessarily throw out the baby with the bathwater on certain things, whether that's the French Revolution or the Enlightenment um, or something as, you know, uh, kind of low stakes as the term picnic even. Um, Because oftentimes these things do have a more radical interpretation or, or a more radical history. And like, we don't have to throw that by the wayside. I got to say, it is kind of funny hearing you say picnic. It's just, <laughs> I got a kick out of hearing that. Um, Should we bring that back? <laughs> maybe. You, you'll be the one. Um, but, you know, and it's also, there are, there are, you know, there are words out there that have, regardless of their origins, they have, you know, modern day connotations that are negative or associated mm-hmm. with racism. I can't necessarily think of one off the top of my head, but those words are out there. And it's like, picnic is not one of them. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's not something that anyone except in the upper echelons of an ivory tower would like know or think about as being problematic. Um, So that's all I'll say on that. And with these things, I'm always like, is this really what the left wants to focus on? Really? This is so that that's all I say about that. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, I mean, on that note, you know, I, I know Paul, you wanted to talk about the black Jacobins, which actually is a much more significant consequence of the French revolution, in my opinion, than just a uh, little bit. Yeah. Then, uh, you know, the word picnic or even ostrich dicks, although obviously Debatable. we respect both of those things. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, Paul, what can you tell us about CLR James? Yeah. So, you know, Zizek is going to get into the French Revolution and I'm excited for that. But we really can't talk about the French Revolution without talking about another world changing world historic revolution. And that is the Haitian Revolution. And it's not, it's not just because, you know, both revolutions were happening at the same time or that we don't want to privilege a European revolution over one made by enslaved Africans. We need to talk about them together because these revolutions were inherently linked with each other and they fed off each other. And if we're going to talk about the Haitian Revolution, we can't do that without talking about one of the greatest works of history I've ever read, which is The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James, a great intellectual and political activist from the island of Trinidad. And he wrote this book in 1938 when he was fully immersed in the Marxist movement as a Trotskyist, to be precise. And I see it as part of a trilogy of incredible Marxist histories that are beautifully written. So you had the history of the Russian Revolution by Leon Trotsky in 1930. You had Black Reconstruction by W.B. Du Bois in 1935. And then you have Black Jacobins written in 1938. And these works are reflective of an age when global capitalism was in crisis And Marxism was seen by many great intellectuals as a critical tool for understanding social and political history. And in this segment, I can't really do justice to the entirety of the Black Jacobins as a book or the Haitian Revolution as a whole. But I do want to highlight the central thesis James made about the nature of the Haitian Revolution and how it was intimately tied up with the same ideas of modernity and enlightenment that powered the French Revolution. Haiti was arguably France's most important and profitable colony, and it all came through the sugar plantation. James saw the sugar plantations as a contradictory force. 
On the one hand, it was a barbaric force, subjecting Black Haitians to the worst kinds of brutality. But on the other hand, it was a modernizing force, and it exposed Haitian slaves to a very modern form of social organizations. James compares the sugar plantations in Haiti to modern industrial factories. Haitians lived in a greater concentration than urban proletariats. The food they ate and the clothes they wore were imported, meaning they lived in a modern life dictated by international trade. And just like the conditions of industrial capitalism created for industrial workers would be reflected back in the way the workers organized, for James, the plantation system made its victims into modern proletariats, and they used modern organizational methods to overthrow that system. The sugar plantation was directly affected by international political developments. And slave Haitians paid close attention to these developments. And white French slave owners talked openly about the French Revolution in front of them, thinking they were too stupid to understand what was going on. But they did understand. And they were deeply moved by what was happening in France and the ideas of freedom that inspired it. And as we usually see with revolutions, the logical next question is, why can't that happen here? The first rising of Haitian slaves was in 1791, and from then on, what happened in Haiti played a big role in what happened in France. And it's not a coincidence that it was at one of the highest points for the left in the French Revolution in 1794 that the French Assembly declared that enslaved Africans everywhere should be free. Now, James had some other points to prove as well with his book. At the time he wrote this, he was beginning to establish connections with figures in the West Indies and Africa and had started to plant the seeds of the anti-colonial movement that would come throughout the 1960s. Part of what this book does is to demonstrate what a monumental achievement the Haitian Revolution was, and the ability of colonized people to resist and defeat empires anywhere. The Haitian Revolution defeated the Spanish, the British, the French army, who all tried to retake the island into their own possession. The French General Leclerc said in a letter to Napoleon, we in France have a false idea of the country in which we fight and the kind of men we fight against. The historian of the British Army, John Fortescue, said that 1798, which was the year in which the British Army was decimated by the Haitians, was the most disgraceful year in the history of the British Empire. But in the Jack, Black, Jacobin, uh, Black Jacobins, James brings to light another contradiction about the revolution and its leader, Toussaint Louverture. Toussaint was born a slave, and through his organizational genius, he rose to be the accepted leader of the revolution. His strength was his unshakable belief in the Enlightenment ideals of freedom and liberty. But this was also his downfall. Despite the fact that Napoleon had invaded Haiti and was trying to retake the island, Toussaint wavered and still thought he could negotiate his way out. He believed so much in the French Revolution that he didn't think it was possible that they could betray their own ideals. And James writes in the Black Jacobins, Toussaint could not believe that the French ruling class would be so depraved, so lost to all sense of decency, as to try to restore slavery. His grasp of politics led him to make all preparations, but he could not admit to himself and to his people that it was easier to find decency, gratitude, justice, and humanity in a cage of starving tigers than in the councils of imperialism. Toussaint was captured, he was sent to France, and he died in prison cell. But the revolution would go on, and slavery was never fully restored in Haiti. The Black Jacobins is so important because it proves the absurdity of the notion that universalism can only apply to white Europeans or white Westerners. 
The Haitian Revolution was universalism and internationalism carried to its fullest and truest extent. Just imagine how confused French soldiers must have been hearing Black Haitian soldiers, many formerly enslaved, singing the Marseillaise. But it wouldn't have been confusing if they understood that the Haitian revolutionaries believed in universalism more than the French ever could. And despite being called by some the father of Pan-Africanism, C.L.R. James was always clear that rejecting Western civilization wholesale was never the way to go. Listen to a clip from him uh, in an interview of 1970 he did about his book. I use the Greek classics because the basis of Western civilization is the work of the Hebrews and of the Greeks. Everybody understands that. So in studying the race and the radicalism of race, I take examples of the radicalism of the Hebrews and the radicalism of the Greeks. I am happy to do the story of Moses because he was the first that we know of who led a suppressed people to freedom. So if you're talking about freedom and the release of a suppressed people, I begin with Moses. That is what we are rooted in, particularly in the United States and in the Caribbean. We are rooted in Western civilization. So we cannot ignore African civilization. We do the best we can to be in contact with it. What series of talks, I deal with Mau Mau, I deal with uh, Nkrumah, etc., the emergence of Africa, but I say we have to be aware of where we have come from. We cannot uh, deny the roots of Western civilization and the radicalism that we find in it, we absorb and take it to ourselves, so that I think we have a lot to learn, because we both Western and African civilization, we of the black people in the Caribbean and in the United States, we touch civilization at two points, and in all my work, I try to be aware of them. Both the Haitian Revolution and the French Revolution have a special place in the heart of the left. And you may have noticed that in Jacobin's design is not a Frenchman, but an homage to the black Jacobins. And I think Jacobin's creative director, Romique Forbes, articulated better than I ever could the meaning of the Haitian Revolution. He wrote, the Haitian Revolution encapsulates the historic mission of the left. That is the truest realization of the Enlightenment, that those ideals wrested from the hypocrites who hawk them and seized by the wretched of the earth can become a radical project for human emancipation. Marx saw through the contradictions. His was both a critique of Enlightenment and a project to expand Enlightenment ideals of political emancipation into a project for genuine human emancipation. And so sounds off the, his, the left's history. It's the demand that those principles formalized in our political institutions extend to our lived experience, in our social and economic life, in the home, and on our streets. The history of the Haitian Revolution should also serve as a reminder to those on the left who, abandoning thoughtful critique, can imagine no response to the contradictions of enlightenment other than absolute negation. Remember that line in the Internationale, for reason in revolt now thunders. It was never a cry for a revolt against reason, but a harbinger of reason itself in revolt. And Jen, I don't know if you've ever read this work, and it's kind of interesting because I feel like recently Sailor James has kind of become popular again in the left or kind of like trendy, but I think for the wrong reasons. Um, and, you know, personally, I, I think he, he had a lot of interesting things to say. I don't think he really tells us much about our situation in the United States or what to do. But I think, you know, the history he wrote was great. What he wrote about West Indian society and if anyone's a fan of cricket, which I am, um, he has beautiful writings on cricket. Um, but, you know, I think Black Jackman's to me is one of the greatest uh, works of history I've ever read. 
Yeah, Black Jacobins is great. I could talk about Black Jacobins <laughs> and the Haitian Revolution all day. Um, on the subject of cricket, much like the Enlightenment, the former British colonies are now so much better at cricket than England. And I think that rules. <laughs> yeah, if anyone has seen or should watch, if you haven't, the documentary Fire in Babylon, which is about the West Indies cricket team um, and how, you know, when they were ascendant in cricket was at the same time as their anti-colonial movements were blooming. Really great documentary. Um so, yeah, cricket's great. Big fan. <laughs> um, I, I do want to mention uh, on the subject of the Black Jacobins and the Haitian Revolution, um, This I, I hope this is not controversial, but the one reason why I have never been super crazy about the famous Audre Lorde quote, the master's tools can never dismantle the master's house, is because I think you only have to look at the Haitian Revolution to show... Uh, why that statement falls short, right? I mean, as you pointed out in your segment, the Haitian Revolution was about seizing the promise of the Enlightenment uh, and really, really pushing those contradictions to the fore. And like, they did that amazingly. I mean, like, you know, C.L.R. James, uh, it, you mentioned this in your talk as well, and C.L.R. James in, in his book mentions, you know, the Haitian troops singing La Marseillaise, um, which of course is the French national anthem, but it's also been kind of, uh, since the French Revolution, a mainstay of, I guess, liberation and resistance, right? Um, right. During World War II, I mean, that comes a little later, but during World War II, of course, the French resistance famously sang La Marseillaise uh, against the Nazis and the Vichy regime. Um, and and the, the story that, uh, I, I can't remember if it's C.L.R. James himself or another historian um, who points out that, you know, as I said, the Haitian troops would sing La Marseillaise uh, when Napoleon's troops were kind of coming at them. And there was one famous battle in particular where, you know, the Napoleon's troops kind of start coming closer and they're like, what, it, like, what is that? And it turns out to be La Marseillaise and they're completely just like thrown into disarray. And I believe a few of them even lay down their arms. And, and um, one of them says something like, you know, we sang this song in France, in Italy, in Austria, and we always sang it as liberators. What the fuck are we doing now? Mm. Um, and I think that's really powerful. Yeah, and... What else is so great about this book? It's like it's it's really great example of what Marxist history actually means, you know. And I think if, if people have heard, there's a lot of jargoning terms like Marxists use the word contradiction all the time. And I think sometimes you kind of just like don't even really know what it means. But I think this is a great example of like real mater materialist history and like the contradiction of the sugar plantation and the sugar trade of like what it did to Haitians, but it also put them in a structural position to be able to carry out this revolution and do it mm -hmm. with modern organizational forms. Um, that really, to me, is a great example of like what we mean by Marxist history or a Marxist interpretation. Mm -hmm. Sorry, one last note about the Haitian Revolution and also the Audre Lorde quote. Um, I just thought of this, so like, please, no one get mad at me. But when it comes to the Haitian Revolution, I really feel like, uh, you know, because Haiti was a slave society, they really did seize both the master's tools and the master's house, like quite literally, you know? And I guess, you know, when it comes, when it comes to that phrase, like, I just feel like they're not just the master's tools. They're also our tools. You know, we can appropriate the tools or shall I say, we can expropriate them um, and the house as well. So that's right. my last thoughts on that. I, sorry, I have to go one more last thought, but <laughs> yeah, please I continue mean the metaphor since we're already, <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it gets back to that, uh, that recent episode on post-colonialism, because it's, again, it's like, why should we say it's the master's tool of like science or technology mm -hmm. or whatever? You know, like I think or that's the enlightenment. 
Right. It's like seeding a lot of ground to kind of just accept that these things are not our tools as well. Right. Um, that's it. I'll shut up. I'm done. All right. Well, um, I think it is almost time to bring on the guest you've all been waiting for, Shlaboy Zizek. Uh, but before we turn to the interview, I just want to quickly remind everybody that in honor of Bastille Day, Jacobin Magazine is running a deep discount where international subscribers can get a print and digital subscription for, yes, that's right, $17.89. And if you're here in the U.S., uh, all domestic subscriptions are only $7.89. Uh, so this is a great deal. Uh, definitely subscribe to Jacobin if you haven't already. There's a great new issue on the working class that's coming up. Um, it's it's going to be, I, I think it's going to be a good one. Um, I mentioned earlier that Vivek Chibber is in this, Liza Featherstone, I believe Eileen Jones, uh, Megan Day, Ronan Burton-Shaw, all of the heavy hitters. So you don't want to miss that. So I guess on that note, um, it is now time to turn to our interview with Shlaboy Zizek. You, of course, all know him as the maverick Slovenian philosopher. He is the author of over 30 books. I believe that his most recent uh, include Pandemic, A Left That Dares to Speak Its Name, and Hegel in a Wired Brain. We had a great time talking to him. So here's the interview. So I want to start by, I guess, asking you what you see as the most important legacy of the French Revolution. I think lots of people kind of broadly know that, of course, the revolution toppled the French monarchy, uh, laid the groundwork for liberal democracy in Europe, of course, served as an inspiration for the Haitian Revolution, uh, and then a little later, uh, partly an inspiration for the Russian Revolution. But I guess my question for you is, can we see the influence of the revolution anywhere unexpected? Or maybe another way of putting it is, um, what is something about the French Revolution that you wish more people on the left knew about? I, I will try to not only seduce those who are already convinced, but I think one should do this respectfully. Seduce, or at least confuse, those who, those who may be sincere liberals but they are nonetheless kind of uh, bombarded by this message. Yeah, maybe they meant well, but they got into a deadlock, absolute terror, indistinct killing, and so on. So it's nonetheless uh, the, the root, the elementary form of, of, of a Stalinist terror, and so on, and so on. I think they should be redeemed. I would even go as far as to say that some in some things, we should even return to them, to the French revolutionaries, uh, uh, in comparison with uh, even with Marxist experience. There was something unique about that moment. What first, my first advice, sorry if this will be a little bit boring, but my first advice to those benevolent skeptics, you know, like, yeah, they tried to do good things, egalitarianism, but look where they ended in terror and so on. It's, let's get, now I've been talked like a good positivist, why not? Let's get the facts straight. I spoke with some historians in France, in English, who told me, hey, terror, listen, don't compare this with Nazi or Stalinist terror, when they had political trials, it was not as it is usually portrayed, it was just a formality, you were uh, condemned in advance, 
the, when you were accused by a revolutionary tribunal, do you know that the, the, the percentage of how often you were found guilty was around 60%. So it was 60 to 40. You had a fair chance of uh, surviving. Second point, many of these accusations, irrational and so on, ask now honest, even liberal, not pro-Jacobin, British historians who had a look into, because the good thing about the United Kingdom is they were never properly bombed, blah, blah. They had most of their documents uh, kept. The data about the interaction of English government with French revolutionaries, you know that, for example, the accusation against Danton and the killing of Danton is usually considered as the moment, the first moment of the great madness of revolutionary terror. Mm-hmm. Story, he was guilty. It is clear from the British secret documents, now they became accessible, that Danton was all the time systematically bribed by the British government to pursue. So, second thing, the beheading of the king and queen. Sorry, they, they revolutionaries wanted to give, to give him a chance, but while he was not even in prison, just isolated in his castle, the king, the royal family were constantly plotting with the enemies who were attacking France of how to overthrow the French government. So they were simply they were simply guilty. Terror, numbers of terror. My God, according to some data, Termidor, when oh the terror was over, people were dancing on the streets and so on. No, <laughs> in the first two three weeks of the Termidor terror after Saint-Just and Robespierre were arrested and liquidated, more people were guillotined than almost in the entire era of the uh, revolutionary terror before. You know what was the only difference? You should look upon it closely who, who was guillotined. The point is, of course, that under Jacobins, it was visible names, nobles and so on. What made them visible? We don't even hear or have precise statistics of the ordinary low people who were beheaded and so on and so on. The the last thing, this is my ultimate argument against those who claim, oh, it was a terrorist dictatorship. Sorry, but Whatever you say about Robespierre, he was not an idiot. One should maybe find those documents which demonstrate this. I know they exist. Some historians showed them to me. Do you know that uh, Robespierre again and Saint-Gris were not idiots? They saw it coming, the gradual organization in the Assemblée Nationale, National Assembly of a new coalition to oust, to throw out the Jacobins. And they they were, if anything, they were too procedural, liberal. They didn't want to do a simple 
coup d'état to introduce direct terror. No, it was quite tragically naive. In the days before Termidor, mm-hmm. Robespierre was seen walking along the river Seine in Paris, just thinking about his speech. For him, the medium where he will win was not arrest the counter-revolutionaries and so on. It was a big speech in Assemblée Nationale. And it failed. He was overthrown by a simple majority of votes. I'm sorry, that's not how you overthrow this true totalitarian dictator and so on and so on. If mm-hmm. anything, Robespierre was very moderate. He knew, he was aware of the danger of the terror exploding into madness. And his last writings were full of double fear or suspicion. One is how to gradually bring the terror to the end. And second, maybe his deepest insight. And here I see the proper greatness of uh, uh, of uh, Robespierre, of uh, uh, Saint-Just and some others. You know, they were not idiots. They were aware of what Marxists later conceptualized as the gradual shift from Republican form to some form of personal dictatorship, Bonapartism. And they were aware that, again, this will in all probability happen. And they even debated this temptation. Should we become the new Bonaparte? And we will control the situation, blah, blah. And it's one of the most beautiful ethical gestures, my God. They concluded, no, sorry, it's better for us to lose our physical head than to take that path. And the step from Robespierre to Napoleon is an important step. Let me give you just one proof, which is for me maybe the most sublime moment. You may know that my big fixation is Haiti revolution. I even have a theory, as you already mentioned it, that French Revolution only became a world historical model through its repetition in Haiti. That was the guest, that a totally different race, cultural group recognized itself in it. And here you measure who was truly progressive. For example, Hegel, who is supposed to be more conservative, in a wonderful footnote to his philosophy of right, I think, he praises Haiti as an example of how even a nation which is not part of Western European enlightened people can successfully establish a modern state. So for me, the single most sublime moment is you know the story <coughs> uh, when the uh, when still before Termidor uh, 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 the uh, Toussaint Louverture the ruling new circle in Haiti 
sent a delegation to Assemblée Nationale. They were celebrated, immediately recognized as equals. Then things changed with Napoleon. Napoleon did something very nasty there. He sent the army, I think it was his brother Joseph, who was the head, the general, with the explicit goal of not only bringing order there, re-establish slavery, but as he said, Napoleon, no, this is such a dangerous precedent that all the slaves there should be killed and new slaves brought. It's not enough just to control the situation. And now comes, for me, one of those every revolutionary should know them, an incredibly moving moment. An important part of Napoleon's army were Polish soldiers. And they did something incredible. They were approaching the revolutionary Black Army. And when they approached it, they heard some singing. And they thought, oh, this must be some, this must be some uh, stupid tribal songs and so on. Uh, and then when they approached more, they saw the rebels, the blacks, are singing Marseillaise. Mm-hmm. You know what happened? The, the French soldiers said, wait a minute, are we here fighting on the right side? They changed sides, they rejoined the black. That's why, very interesting, that's why, that's why uh, when later, in 1804, I think, when the revolution deviated a little bit and the first king or whatever emperor after Toussaint Louverture uh, ordered uh, kill all white people. I have two explanations here, not justifications, but explanations. First is that, nonetheless, he explicitly exempted white people of Polish origins. Mm-hmm. He said they saved us, Polish should survive. Second thing, you know how I understand this kill all white people? This is exactly the moment when the black revolution started to imitate They want to copy the white power structure. They wanted to be the new ruling class and so on and so on. So it's not, oh, they went so far, they wanted to kill all the white people. No, this was imminently a reactionary moment, an attempt to reestablish the old power structure only with them at the position of power. But I think now I will stop, but just this. Do you remember... My God, Haiti is with us, this nation, for being the first who took independence clearly, for being, and that's where I'm wrongly accused of Eurocentrism, for being more European than we Europeans, if by European we mean what is best in our legacy, equality, blah, blah. They were only through them, again, French Revolution became a world historical event, which here I follow my friend Jean-Claude Milner, who is not exactly a radical leftist, but here he is right, who says, sorry, American revolution was never such an authentic emancipatory event. Even now it's an unfinished revolution. It drags on. That's why American revolution in a nice polemics against Hannah Arendt, 
Milner developed this. How American Revolution was always a compromise. Lincoln, again, it didn't succeed. You can Kuklos Klan and so on and so on. So again, uh, just to conclude, but you can then ask me more. What I would like to point out is that we live in an era, so it seems where these are old romantic dreams, all people gather, sorry, we live in a complex digitalized society, it's no longer time for such things. No, I think that today, with the crisis that we are approaching, and now it's clear that COVID will not disappear, uh, um, there will be other pandemics, uh, global warming is becoming reality, and so on and so on. We are approaching an emergency state. And sooner or later, it may take 10 years, but then we will pay the price. It probably will take 10, 15 years. Something will have to happen. It's simply the only way out. First, voluntarism in a progressive sense. Like we cannot justify uh, uh, measures of how to reorient our production to fit the uh, uh, to feed ec ecological goals, protecting environment. You cannot ground this in some objective necessity of productive forces. We simply should act, even if it's, again, the market logic. Second point, egalitarianism. Even those in power has to pay now lip service to it. We fight pandemic. The goal should be not protected bubbles, but universal health care. Then, I know what I'm saying here. Elements of progressive terror. I don't mean secret police grabbing you, but when you have a pandemic, when you have nature in chaos, you have to control the situation. And fourth element, as a counterpoint to the third one, trust in the people, which means precisely more than this. Every four years, you have election and then... Uh, Corruption takes on and so on and so on. It was already clear in fighting the pandemic that the best countries, still now at least, the best in dealing with the pandemic, were those where the state could rely on the people. For example, although now they have a little bit higher number, but the miracle till two months ago was Vietnam. Mm -hmm. They didn't have enough vaccines or whatever. They have excellent local self-organization. These four features, voluntarism, egalitarianism, terror in good sense, and trust in the people, this will be needed. This is needed in emergency states. So I think, again, that something like the way the Jacobins acted, of course, in different conditions, but this basic logic will have to be reinvented if we mean it seriously coping with not just one catastrophe, pandemic, it will be another pandemic, it will be ecological catastrophe, and so on and so on. There is no return to normality. We will need this type of radical Measures. I'm here on Lenin's side. People are often telling me, but you are critical of Lenin sometimes. I say maybe, but the only Lenin I really don't like, and I hope you also, is Lenin Moreno. <laughs> <laughs>
delivered a song to them. No, I I think that that uh, what has to be done now cannot be formulated in this, for my taste, a little bit too trustful. Standard Marxist notion, uh, the uh, relations of production are developed, deve sorry, forces of production, blah, blah. No, as we should act, not literally, but in the spirit of what Lenin did. He saw out of all this standard evolutionary Marxist formulas an opportunity for the revolution. Remember that Mensheviks were not some bad guys. Okay, they were, but basically they were simply old-fashioned orthodox Marxists. When Marx said, you remember, when Marx said, one thing is certain, I'm not a Marxist. I think mm -hmm. precisely Mensheviks. Their idea was, don't dream about the revolution now, the situation is not yet ripe, we first have to, uh, have to uh, enact the passage to bourgeois democracy in an orderly way, and so on and so on. No, we cannot play this game today. We should act in a voluntarist way and a little bit faster. I've spoken too long. Please, put on at least now you, Jane, put on your stupid uh, black leather. Actually, I'm going to hand the leather over to Paul. So, and speaking of that, um, I mean, what do you think we can learn from the, about the nature of counter-revolution and reaction from the experience of the French Revolution and even the Haitian Revolution? What, mm -hmm. what does it teach us about the nature of counter-revolution? Uh, first, usual, the usual thing is to say that uh, the Jacobins were uh, too radical, they should have been looking for a pact and so on. But you, you, you know, it's the same as with October Revolution. It's often said that they could have predominated in a more peaceful, organic way, that it is the Red Terror which caused them the counter-revolution, civil war. Look, it's not so simple. Can we even imagine today the tremendous pressure under which France was in 1892, early 93, and then Soviet Union in 1918, beginning of 1919? In both cases, the central government uh, controlled, I think, around only one-seventh of the, uh, of the territory of the state. And this was not just like in Vendée, some primitive farmers rebelling and so on. I, in, as concerning Soviet, uh, future Soviet Union, you know which book is the absolute one to read? It's difficult to get today. An English general joined Kolchak, the Siberian counter-revolution, the most dangerous one who covered Il Ural, all that big Asian part of Soviet Union, and he wrote his memoirs after the war, observations. And the image you get there is a terrifying one. Against these accusations of, you know, communists are usually anti-Semitic, sorry, the first thing Kolchak did in his domain was to start reprinting like crazy protocols of Zion and claiming this is a 
Judeo-Bolshevik uh, plot. At that point already, it originated, as you know, this caricature of Trotsky as a devil, Jewish devil, and so on and so on. And he, this British general, I'm so sorry, I don't, I forgot his name slipped out of my mind. He also described in detail what the white counter-revolutionary did when they uh, occupied a territory. Incredible purges, much more brutal than those of the Bolsheviks when they reoccupied at the end this territory. Massive killing, restoration of land uh, to the previous owners, and so on and so on. So it was absolutely wasn't just the Bolshevik brutality. No, it was much more complex. It was also that farmers, like, okay, say, Bolsheviks, we don't trust them. Okay, let the white people, let the counter-revolution come. And then the situation for them got much worse. And they almost effectively welcomed back the Bolshevik land, the Bolshevik forces. Because, you know, you should not forget that at that point, Lenin's formula was not collectivization. It was land to the farmers. And Bolsheviks did that. It was an ingenious, an ingenious move. Lenin, to the end of his life, warned against the deadlock of too fast a privatization. You know who follows Lenin here? My good friend, I'm proud to say, although we met only two times, my good friend, uh, Alvaro Garcia Linera, the Bolivian vice president, who said that Lenin, and the term we coined together in debate is principled pragmatic stance. You have a principled stand. We know communist horizon and so on. But then in how to actualize this principle stance, you have to be very cautious. Don't alienate people who are not really your enemies. And Lenin was here incredibly open. I read some, uh, um, uh, some documents on how, you know, after the Civil War, many uh, Western high corporate managers, Rockefeller even, I don't know who the kind, came to visit the Soviet Union, and Lenin was fascinated with them. He saw in them masters of how to coordinate, organize large factories, all the complexity. He saw an emancipatory potential in them. And the same miracle was accomplished by Morales, Linera, and now Lucio Arce in Bolivia. They were radical, but in a very careful way. They didn't screw it up. When people ask me, okay, whenever radical left came to power, they screwed it up. I'm very sorry, in Bolivia, they did not screw it up. The real purchase power of ordinary worker in the, how much was it, nine, ten years of Morales' first reign, more than redoubled. They succeeded in controlling the big capital, but at the same time exploiting it, in the sense of making it work for them. It's, this is very important for us today. And my, I think this is what we need today. And this is where Jacobins come. Why do I still prefer 
Jacobins a little bit over Lenin was that not in his practice, but in his theory. Lenin was, for me, a little bit too much of an idealist and at the same time historical determinist. You know, like in Orthodox Marxism, he still thought history is on our side, uh, there are phases of history, we, uh, we just accomplish a task predetermined by history and so on. While uh, uh, Robespierre and Saint-Just use some wonderful metaphors here, where they say, no, revolution is like you are on wild sea, on a boat, and you don't have any maps, any compasses, orientation, you have to improvise, and so on, and so on. They were much more aware, and we should be aware of this open situation, how to reorganize things, we have to improvise, and so on, and so on. Lenin, in his practice, was fully, was fully aware of this. So, to answer to your question, I think... Uh, there is, and this is how great progressive revolutionaries ask, yes, ultimately you have to maintain power. No bullshitting here. But at the same time that you don't make compromises about who is in power and so on, you should not create unnecessary enemies. You should look at things rationally. Like, we have there some very efficient big corporations. How to control them, but not ruin the production? How to make them work for us? Or, as Lenin was aware, new economic policy. How to... He was well aware that state cannot provide this uh, small level production of consumerist goods. So let's use them. It can be controlled, and so on and so on. That's, I think, how you really fight a counter-revolution. By this mixture of, on the one hand, at the principal level, no compromises. But you should nonetheless give those who are in principle your, your opponents, you should give them a chance, like, obey our rules, contribute to the welfare of the nation, and, okay, we tolerate a certain level of your wealth, and so on and so on. It can be done. Again, of all the countries, Bolivia proved that it can be done. Now people tell me, right-wingers, but look at Haiti, even now, you remember, a week ago or when, the prime minister killed and so on. That's the curse of it's a nightmare how this country for just doing this at that point, making a revolution, and as some people deployed very nicely, all European modernity, that's its paradox, was filled in full of the ideas of freedom, freedom against slavery, but they mostly meant slavery in this metaphoric sense. As a worker, you are as a slave. At home, a woman maybe is a slave, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, they didn't write a lot about literal slavery, which was exploding in early stages of capitalism. And again, in Haiti, they did this. That's why they had to be punished. And they were punished for 
200 yes. So I, I want to go back to something you alluded to when you were talking about the Haitian Revolution um, or the Haitian Revolution and the French Revolution. So, you know, as we know, the principles of the Enlightenment very heavily influenced the French revolutionaries. And as you mentioned, you can see that sort of being pulled through to the Haitian Revolution. Um, I kind of feel like today, especially in the U.S. on the left, the Enlightenment has kind of fallen out of favor, right? Uh, and you you had sort of mentioned this or alluded to this as well. Um, I think there's a conception among some people that, you know, Enlightenment principles or Enlightenment values are somehow um, Eurocentric or non-universal. Or perhaps I should say that the very Enlightenment concept of universality is something that a lot of people on the left in the U.S. now try to push against. So I... You know, because we are talking about the French Revolution and the Enlightenment, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why the left today should embrace the Enlightenment, or, or what is it that we can take from the Enlightenment? Uh, I know, of course, in, thanks very much for this question. I know in detail this line of argumentation. Mm-hmm. You know, the problem is identity politics for me here. And of course, I have nothing against the identity politics in the sense of every group should be allowed or even solicited to retain, assert its identity. Incidentally, in the mid-1920s, till the Stalinist term, Soviet Union practiced this type of identity politics in Ukraine. I read now a right-wing historical overview of the development of Ukraine. Do you know that till October Revolution, Ukrainians were not allowed to use in everyday level to practice the Ukrainian language. It was just Russian. Ukraine developed its grammar, dictionaries. Ukrainian became a literary language during the 1920s. So they consciously proposed these identities. The problem I see is somewhere where, somewhere else. And as I did it, I think already I forgot where in a text, the problem with identity politics for me is that it implies a kind of a horizontal image of social antagonisms I'm here, you are there, we should tolerate each other, it should be allowed to to build its identity, and so on, and so on. And you can see the catastrophe of this the moment you apply it to class struggle. Now comes my provocation. Uh, The movie which got, which triumphed at Oscars this year, uh, Nomadland, It's honest, nice, liberal, yeah. But I think it's a wrong step towards what I'm tempted to call classism in the sense of class identity politics. The thesis is implicit, at least the way I experience the movie. Look, even those poorest workers who cannot even afford a home, permanent home, who had to drive around searching for job and so on, even they have their own cultural identity, even they have their own way of life with small rituals, solidarity, and so on and so on. I don't buy this. I think that the problem of this type of nomadic proletarians is not 
cannot be solved in this sense that you provide a proper cultural identity for them, but that you demonstrate precisely that their situation is so tragic that they cannot reach a full satisfactory self-identity. As Marx put it about proletariat, their identity is self-contradicting. They, they cannot achieve that. Incidentally, in the same way, maybe I will even now write a, a, a new text criticizing this new woke Hollywood, politically correct Hollywood movies, which I think are very dangerous. Like, I didn't see it, I read about it. Luca, this new Disney cartoon about a boy from the sea of Italian coast sea monster who can adopt human image and then becomes friendly with, I think, a gay boy, ordinary Italian man, and they overcome the barriers, develop friendship, and so on, and so on. We see, of course, this is meant to be as a parable for parable for every hatred of the otherness, LGBT uh, uh, immigrants, and so on, and so on. But I'm always very suspicious when a whole set of social contradictions, like why are immigrants coming here? What are the social antagonism among the immigrants? What are we doing wrong with the immigrants? Why can't we deal with the problem of immigrants just in this pure humanitarian way. Oh, there are poor people, we are humans, let's help them, and so on and so on. No, the way to really help them is to question our politics of colonialism. Look at all these critical points. Uh, 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 refugees, uh, immigrants from Africa, not to mention uh, ISIS, Syrian civil war, and so on and so on. I wrote a short text apropos Donald Rumsfeld, where I claim, my God, Rumsfeld was the main creator of ISIS, in the sense that it's this catastrophic politics in Iraq, Syria, and so on, which created ISIS. Changes had to happen at this level. So you know how far I'm ready to go here. Now, this will be a problematic part. But please take me seriously. I don't trust humanitarians who say, but immigrants are suffering so much, we should help them. No, I would much more trust a slightly conservative guy who says, immigrants are annoying me. They are too different. I don't want them here. But I want to be honest. They live in a shitty place there. So let's stop what we are doing economically, politically, so that they will be able to have normal life there. The moment the problem is put in the terms of uh, humanitarianism, are we good enough to help them and so on, something is terribly wrong. Again, the problem is the global international situation. The problem is not, oh my God, there are immigrants on our border, should we allow them in or not? Of course we should allow them to avoid a misunderstanding much more than we do. But this is not the solution. At this level, again, I'm already for years ago 
suspicious of this certain kind of identity politics. You know what is my primordial experience here? I remember I'm old enough before Mandela and NC took over the last 20 years of apartheid rule in South Africa. You know that apartheid ideology was absolute identity politics. Their argument, I read some of their text, against simply giving the blacks right to vote was, my God, but look, they have wonderful, authentic, ancient culture. If we give them the right to vote, they will just become alienated consumerists like us and so on and so on. Here, I love my friends from these minorities whose answer is not a hypocritical one, but a wonderfully open us, open one. Yes, please, why not? Let us, uh, allow us please to experience a little bit of your corrupted welfare state alienation and so on. You know, there is so much, there is so much uh, hypocrisy here. So that's my worry, that uh, how to really solve the problems. And it's not just uh, um, at a moral level. It's a question of survival for all of us. If things that are now happening in still in the Middle East and other parts, Guatemala, parts of Africa, and so on, if this is not resolved there, then this situation of allowing a certain amount of them to come, I'm not talking from my perspective, to Western Europe will just breed hatred here and even more crucial. We are not receiving here the true victims. It's good to see at the statistics. Average immigrants, apart from a minor number, are those who are aggressive, strong enough to pay all the bribes and so on. The truly poor remain there in terrible conditions. I think, again, we should move to this level of seeing the global problem, seeing where are the roots of the problem. If not, we are lost. And so the, you know, the spirit of the French Revolution and I think the Enlightenment in general was kind of infused with this hope um, and hope and progress for the future. And I think on the left, especially in academia, there are, there are certain trends such as like Afro-pessimism or, or postmodernism that don't have the same kind of hope. And, you know, a lot of revolutions of the late 18th, early 19th century were kind of fueled by these common, um, you know, themes, grievances, social forces. Do you see any prospects for revolutions in the 21st century? And if so, you know, what factors do you think will fuel them? It's very risky, this terrain. We don't know right. not, but I, I think that, yes, you know, history is full of miracles in a good sense. Like, who would have even imagined 20, 25 years ago something like what happened? Okay, we know how it finished then. But nonetheless, something like Syriza in Greece. Mm. The literally majority of the population mobilized at this level and so on and so on. And uh, so I cannot be precise about what form some let's call it revolution or upheaval, strong social upheaval will take. I just uh, 
want to emphasize one thing, which seems to me crucial. I've written about it a couple of times. Till now, the predominant form of protests in uh, third world and uh, Eastern European post-communist countries was what Habermas, in a very unfortunate term of the praise, called Nachholende Revolution, catch-up revolution. Like, we in the developed Western Europe already had it, you are just trying to catch up with us, and that's all you can do. Habermas went so far here that he even attacked some East German dissidents, like Christa Wolf, the writer, and so on, who claimed, but maybe, in spite of all uh, communist failures, there were some forms of minimal social solidarity and so on that hurt some kind of a lesson which could remain operative and help us even if or when we integrate the West. Habermas was in panic about this, protect, pro, uh, about this prospect. For him, no, 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 this was the danger then of new totalitarianism and so on and so on. But I think these skeptics, by skeptics I mean people who saw that what happened after the fall of really existing socialism, it's not simply we want to catch up with the West. Why? Because first, I remember from my youth, I was part of those phenomena, especially my links with Poland. I knew Adam Michnik and so on. And they all told me, you know, at the beginning, Solidarność was a workers' committee. It had a much stronger workers uh, uh, and even modern pop culture and so on. Turn. Uh, the, the church took over later. So basically, if you look closely at what was moving, even the majority of solidarity, it was not simply capitalism. It was an open society where there is a freedom of expression uh, and basic social safety, welfare, some welfare guaranteed and so on. It was much closer to what was the best in the official ideology itself. And the sad paradox is that since then neoliberal takeover of post-European East, post, sorry, post-communist East European countries. When this happened, then this betrayed socialist legacy returned in the guise of its opposite as this uh, new right-wing uh, populism, which, and that's the saddest thing, which still has a much stronger social note than pro-Western, market liberals, and so on. Look at Poland. Yes, I hate them, this Kaczynski's party, uh, law and justice. <coughs> but you know what they did? It's horrible, horrible, from the perspective of freedom-loving liberals. They raised uh, average salary. They made uh, conditions for retirement much better. 
student loans, and so on and so on. They did a whole series of measures for ordinary people, which the ruling liberal, even left liberal business elite was not ready to do. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that aren't we getting now something similar even in the West? The revolt we are getting now there. Look at uh, uh, the yellow vest in France. Okay, they are mixed. I don't totally support them. But the important thing is this one. They are not no longer a catch-up demand. It's not no, we want true parliamentary democracy. They have, a, they articulate a discontent precisely in this Fukuyama's world of, uh, of uh, uh, capitalist liberal democracy and so on and so on. So in the East and in the West, we have a certain amount, amount of critical energy which cannot be properly articulated more and more in the existing parliamentary system. And again, the right-wing populists manipulate with this in a very astute way. And my formula is the only way, even for the honest liberals, to catch ground again is to move to the left. I think that's a pretty pretty good note to end on. Uh, it looks like we are coming up on the hour. So I want to thank you, Schlavoy, for being here. Again, we will air this on Bastille Day. So happy Bastille Day to you and to all the viewers. I'm very grateful to all of you for being able to talk here. You know why? If you allow me a brief uh, conclusion. Because I... Always, when I mention Jacobins and so on, even those who are sympathetic to me, they take this as a kind of eccentricity. You know, Ooh, you are playing a postmodern intellectual game or whatever. But listen, I now I even don't want to mention Marxism too much. I simply tell them, look at Seattle uh, and uh, no, I don't like Seattle. My favorite cities there are Vancouver, although. <laughs> The center, the island, is now occupied by the Far East rich people. They will have to do something. Uh, no, I, I have nothing against people from the East to come in, but not just the rich people from there. And Portland, you know why I like Portland? It still has, I think, the best bookstore in the United States. Mm. Four or five yes. connected, no? So what I'm saying is that just look, just Look at it with some kind of a remainder of a healthy common sense. When you have these effects of global warming, pandemic is going on and so on and so on. It's stupid to say, let's leave the conclusion to the market. The situation is too much an emergency state. It's not, I don't like the metaphor of war here. But it is some kind of a warlike emergency state. And let me give a metaphor which I hope all rough militarists will like. You are attacked by an enemy and you need planes and tanks. 
And if you don't say, okay, let's let's address the market, let's, you know, blah, blah. No, you have to organize it in a voluntarist way immediately. We need 10,000 tanks, we need bombers, and so on. And just saying that the same thing is here, that uh, voluntarism is needed. Again, egalitarianism, not in this abstract sense, everybody the same salary, but it is simple sense of never should we in the pandemic, for example, sacrifice one part of the world of one part of our own population. It doesn't work. Healthcare simply has to be universal. Not to mention the new crisis. We will need some transnational organizations with enough force to even enforce solutions. I think it's totally realistic if these trends of extreme heat drought in some places will go on, to somehow execute large movements, tens of millions, even more, of the population. And we cannot afford today to do this through war, as it was done in the past. These are, for me, simply things of common sense survival. So my concluding formula is that as we know many things, but the most surprising thing is our self-imposed blindness, how many things we refuse to know. We simply act as if, you know, oh, the pandemic will be over, or so what if some oysters are frying uh, in the ocean uh, near Vancouver, and so on and so on. But it's clear that these phenomena are just are just popping up here and there, and they are gradually combining in a more global change of balance. Like, what gives me panic is that it's not just there, Vancouver. Did you read what is happening now in those places which were usually proclaimed the coldest places in the earth, in northern Siberia? They also are at 35 degrees now. We have to get ready. I'm not saying panic. I'm saying getting ready for large movement of the population, emergency measures, and so on and so on. And I think here, communism, some form of communism will be necessary. Capitalism cannot confront these problems. That was kind of the perfect note uh, to end on, I think. Um, I hope all of you watching enjoyed that interview. I had a great time speaking to Schlavoy. Uh, Paul, any last thoughts on the Schlavoy interview? Just uh, never a dull moment. Might not never always agree moment. with him, but it's it's always interesting. Indeed it is. Um, oh, I also want to quickly mention, um, <clears throat> we tentatively uh, asked Schlavoy if he would come back in October to talk about the Russian Revolution. Uh, so if you enjoyed that, please hit like, and we will have to get him back. And believe it or not, that whole segment, that was uh, four questions on our part. Yeah, so, when we were rewatching that, I was like, oh, we only asked him four questions. Right. <laughs> uh, it's got a lot yeah. to say. Yeah, like you said, never a dull moment. 
Um, so I want to I want to say we actually have another guest coming on in just a minute. Um, this will be part of the Labor Paul segment, and I will hand it over to you, Paul, for that. Um, but before we turn to Todd Wolfson, who will be joining us in just a second, I want to quickly mention again for anybody who's just tuning in, Jacobin Magazine is having a Bastille Day sale. If you're an international subscriber, you can get a sub- subscription, a print and digital subscription for yes, the price of seventeen eighty nine. If you're here in the U.S., a domestic subscription is $7.89. So definitely hit the link in the description box, or you can also go to Jacobin's website and use the code Bastille Day to get get that discount. Um, And that'll be for today, Bastille Day. And here's Young King. All right, folks, we're doing it. I'm going to show you how to do it, because don't you want to be someone who owns this many Jacobins? Well, this is the sale for you. And uh, all you got to do is go to jacobin.com. Oops, wait, wait, hold on. There it is. Jacobin Mag. Jacobin Mag. Don't go to jacobin.com. I don't know what that is. It's we don't probably, know what that is. It's I'm going to look that up after the show, things. actually. Um, Jacobinmag.com. We're doing this together right now. You, you're you on your computer. I'm on mine. I'm pulling up jacobinmag.com. And ooh, look, right now, you get this article. It says to celebrate Bastille Day, 789 subscriptions. Let's click on this guy. And when you scroll down, it says, oh, just follow this link. That's all you got to do. You just got to click on this link. So let's all do it together. Click together. All right. And we got a new new pop-up, and it says to subscribe. And you can you can get one for yourself, or you can get one for someone else. It could be a gift. This could be like a generous thing you do today. Have you done something generous today? This, is, this could be it. Um, you know, self-improvement. Uh, subscription levels, all this. You know, you want to you want to get it for the year or you can get it for three years. Maybe that's a, that's it's you're going to save some money. Uh, but the biggest thing is that when you scroll all the way down, look, I'm, I'm going to save twenty two dollars and six cents. That's you know, that's like a lot of coffee or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's like a New York cup of coffee. I don't know. I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but I think an international subscription is usually over $50 because of the shipping costs. So yeah. definitely if you're outside of the US, get on the $17.89 deal. Um, it's also more than half off if you're in the US. Um, so this is a really good deal. Uh, you know, you don't just get the print issue. You also, you know, can access everything online and you have uh, access to all of Jacobin's archives. So if you missed, for instance, one of the early issues that had the Ikea guillotine on the cover, yeah. I don't you know, did. if Kale, you have that one. That's I do not, but it also is- serves as a home gym as Kale. You can see from Kale, yeah. you can lift right. weights with it. It's great. I'm balancing my computer on it right now. It's helping me raise <laughs> There you go. so many things. So again, uh, for today only, the Bastille Day sale, use code Bastille Day or click the link in the description box. This is the new issue that's coming out on the working class. Very, very appropriate for today. So don't sleep. Good stuff. Get it. All right. right. Um, well, I think it's time for our next guest. Uh, so this is part of the Labor Pulse segment. We're going to be speaking to Todd Wolfson from Rutgers University. Paul, take it away. All right. And uh, before I start, um, just a reminder, you know, we've been on a roll with these Labor Paul guests. I don't want to miss out, but keep submitting questions. If you have any questions about labor unions, labor union history, whatever it is, put them in the chat. We are looking at them and collecting them and I will try to answer it. Um, But I want to bring on someone I've gotten to know virtually over the next few months. Um, Todd Wolfson is joining us. He is an associate professor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers University and president of the Rutgers Union 
our graduate workers, faculty, and postdoctoral associates. Uh, welcome, Todd. Thank you so much for having me, Paul and Jen. Um, never fun to follow Zizek in an interview. Yeah, you know, you know. <laughs> I, I should have just said that now for something completely different, um, yeah. but very important. Um, so you just got done uh, attending, and I think you helped put together this Higher Education Labor Summit. So could you just talk a little bit about that? Like, what was the impetus for putting this together? Um, what kind of came out of it? Um, you know, tell us about it. Absolutely. So it was last week on Wednesday and Friday, and it's the Higher Ed Labor Summit, building a movement to transform higher ed. And basically, we uh, it's important to note the context. Higher ed is in both a acute and long-term crisis. The long-term crisis has been massive disinvestment from federal and state government, and that's led to public universities in particular reaching in all sorts of ways, moving towards, a, as we all know, a neoliberal or corporate form of governance of our, higher, of, a, of our higher ed institutions, which has led to rising student, rising tuition costs and growing student debt, but also a growing number of contingent workers in higher ed, including adjuncts. And, and that's one of the parts, segments of, of the for, labor force we see the most as the most um, exploited, but we also are talking about staff. So that, that's that been a, a crisis in higher ed over the last 50 years. And then with the pandemic, we've seen an acute crisis. Um, higher ed was hit particularly hard by the pandemic. 650,000 people in the U.S. lost their jobs. And that's about 13% of the sector. So in general, higher ed has seen uh, these two crises. Um, and But we've also, uh, those of us in in labor have also seen a moment where there's a lot of hand-wringing and discussion at the federal level about what's to be done in higher ed, uh, competing bills, one from one, the American Families Plan, um, and another from uh, uh, Senator Sanders and Rep. Jayapal, which uh, is called College for All. And so we recognize this as a moment to step into the space and build a collective voice to fight for the future of higher ed. And the only way we're gonna transform higher ed is if labor leads the way. Um, and so <clears throat> we had this summit last week, it was two days. We had hundreds of participants from 75 different unions uh, representing over three to, between three and 400,000 workers. We came out with a platform to focus us on next steps and how to build power together. Um, so that's that's what it was about. And I can say more about what what the what the platform is, et cetera. Yeah, if you, the platform, but also maybe first, I mean, what kind of interested me about this is you united. It wasn't just like faculty and, and grad students, right. you know, all types of workers, including blue collars um, that blue collar workers that work on the campus. So maybe could you talk about how did you bring those forces together and then about the platform you hammered out? Yeah, and, and I, I would say I think this is new. There have been moments when unions, but largely faculty unions, have aligned themselves around the future of higher ed. There, I, I think there have been moments when adjunct faculty have aligned themselves, a new faculty majority, and, and others. Um, so for the last since the pandemic, I've been president of Rutgers uh, faculty, grad, postdoc union, and we've had an ongoing fight with the Rutgers administration. And what we did in order to respond to that was we pivoted away from a local specific fight with the with the university towards an industrial model of organizing. Right. So we brought in 20 unions that represent 20,000 workers and we aligned ourselves towards a single strategy to fight back. And we won. Um, and so it got us thinking about how that could work at a 
national level. And so the summit itself was a mixture of all sorts of workers, grad workers, tenure track faculty, um, adjunct faculty, administrative staff, groundskeepers, healthcare workers, because we know many of our public universities are also massive medical industrial complexes. And so it was across the spectrum. And I think our analysis is if we're going to reform higher ed, it can't be one part of the labor force within the industry leading the way. It needs to be a collective united front. So that's what we built out and we're starting to build out. So for instance, some of the conveners were uh, one of the major conveners was AFSME 3299, which has, I think, about 30,000 administrative staff and all sorts of staff in the UC system in California. Another was Union of Rutgers Administrators, which is administrative staff. We had uh, unions from medical from medical um, parts of universities like Rutgers and others, uh, the SUNY system. So it was it's a broad base that we're trying to build um, in our and we think that's the only way we can actually win this fight. Yeah, and that definitely is appealing to me. And I hope this doesn't sound bad because sometimes when, you know, there's higher ed labor fights of grad students or not, it does seem kind of like isolated and, you know, mm -hmm. not necessarily of the utmost importance. But I think, you know, when you think about it, like take Philadelphia, universities are a huge part of our economy. And of course, it's not just the professors. You know, I remember when I was at Temple, dining hall workers were in a union, the groundskeeping staff. So it really is a big force that can be brought together. And it is important for the economy. It's critical to the economy, right? And also when you think about something like the pandemic and you think about how the managers of our public institutions act, they we know what they've done historically and we know what they did here, which is they always went after the most vulnerable workers. So they went after adjunct faculty, they went after staff, um, and largely disproportionately low-wage workers, largely disproportionately women and people of color. That happened at Rutgers. It happened across the nation in the layoffs. And so, and, and then also when we think about students, the people who are most burdened by student debt because of the rising tuition costs are largely working class kids. And so if we want to re reimagine higher ed and also uh, fight student debt, the way we're going to do it is to build a broad-based force with staff and adjunct faculty leading the way. And that's what we're trying to build out now. And so I'll just say to you, Paul, to your point, you know, as the president, I'm not now I'm vice president of my union, but as the president of a faculty union, what I stepped into was a place where faculty really feel like special unicorns, right? Um, that they're different, that they're not workers. And what we have to do is change that way of thinking and let and build a sort of ideological and political force that recognizes us all as workers that make our institutions run, whether we're uh, serving food at the dining halls, whether we're teaching in the class, whether we're uh, uh, working on the grounds, whether we're um, security guards, et cetera. And so that's what we're trying to do. And that's the goal here. Awesome. So uh, do you want to talk about what are some of the highlights of the uh, platform that you all discussed and decided on? Yeah, I, I think the the highlight here is fighting against, I mean, what we're trying to do actually first and foremost is to build um, an aligned social force that can continue to fight in the medium term over a set of these issues. And, and the reality is it hasn't existed in higher ed. <clears throat> there has not been an alignment of forces. And part of this is because of the way we're represented. We're all represented by unions that have another workforce that's dominant, whether it's K-12, 
for AFT, whether it's municipal workers for AFSCME, um, whether it's industrial workers for UAW. And so what we've recognized is if, if we're going to actually make um, a play here, we need to build alignment amongst all the local unions uh, together and, and step forward there. Um, and so the main goal is to use the fights over higher ed funding right now to build this force that's both around legislative fights, but also ultimately about direct action and building collectivity and building this social force. And we've been watching our, our um, siblings in K-12 and been really inspired by the leadership, the Red for Ed movement, but also uh, the work of unions like CTU or UTLA. And so I think for us, um, we, we, we want to build this engine. But in the short term, what we're doing is focusing on these federal bills. So there's uh, the Biden-backed plan, the American Families Plan, which calls for free, co- free college education for community colleges, for two-year institutions. And then there's the Sanders-Jayapal bill, which calls for uh, free high, public higher ed for two- and four-year institutions, and then also has these two critical labor provisions. One, that all all universities, public universities that get this funding are bound to move all instruction towards a model of 75% tenure stream and 25% adjunct or or part-time faculty. Right now at universities like Rutgers, it's the opposite. 75% is is adjunct faculty or grad workers and 30% is tenure stream. And they also have a corollary provision that all these institutions like Rutgers, if they're going to get this money, they must move to a 75% tenure stream model and they must hire first and foremost their own contingent faculty for those new roles. And so the unions at this um, event very strongly back this plan. And we are going to lift our voices up and demand that whether it's College for All or the American Families Plan, that in it, that the there is funding for public universities at two and four-year institutions, and that there is uh, these two labor provisions that uh, will create less contingent labor. We also want pay parity for uh, part-time teachers. So whether you end up being a tenure stream faculty member or an adjunct faculty member, we want you paid as much as uh, tenure stream faculty. That's all awesome stuff. And maybe to go backwards a little bit, I know this might be kind of a big question, but you recently had a fight over what's called work sharing. And I think people might, our audience might want to know what that is. It probably sounds like a really nice thing to people. Um, Can you talk a little bit about like, what is work sharing and how did you all fight it at uh, Rutgers? Yeah. So um, we actually, we, we fought for it. It's complicated. So what work sharing is what the university at Rutgers, what Rutgers did was the pandemic hit and they laid off a thousand workers again, uh, dining staff and adjunct faculty, largely low wage, largely women and people of color. We built an alliance of 20 unions and we turned to the university and said, with the CARES Act, we can build a plan out that saves the university $100 million, which is about what they said their shortfall was because of the pandemic, doesn't cost workers a dime. And if we give you that, we demand that you don't lay anyone off. And what we offered actually was work share. And what that means simply, it comes from Europe and it's, you know, it's a social democratic model. And basically it says that in a time of crisis, the state picks up the cost of 
the employee, a part of the cost of the employee for the employer, This, in this case, Rutgers. They share the cost. The employee is furloughed, but the employee doesn't lose that money because the state picks it up through unemployment. So with the CARES Act and then with the later uh, pandemic relief bills, there is unemployment. And through that unemployment from the federal government, we're able to keep everyone whole while furloughing, which saves Rutgers money. And so we offered that to the university. Ultimately, we forced them to accept it. We saved the university $100,000. We got all our staff rehired and we got all our adjuncts rehired. We'll see. But we expect them all to be rehired in September. Um, We also won important things for our grad workers and others. So it was something we actually fought for in order to uh, lead in a moment when we knew the university was going to take the most irresponsible approach, which is layoff low-wage workers, et cetera. So we got them all hired back through the WorkShare program. Thanks for correcting me. I don't know why I was thinking that you were you all were against it. Um, and then, you know, it feels like so many things in society, it's like before COVID and after COVID, where, you know, we kind of have this sense, even though we don't know fully what's going to look like that, things are kind of changed forever after COVID. How do you think that's playing out in the university? And I know you were already saying that, of course, for years, like universities are becoming more neoliberal in different ways. This has already been a trend, but do you see anything kind of being accelerated post-COVID? Absolutely. So um, we're in these fights in, at Rutgers and, you know, you think about uh, Naomi Klein's work, shock doctrine, right? And the, the argument that they will never let a good crisis go to waste. So we had deans and administrators saying, literally, we must use this crisis to create a more efficient workforce. What that meant to them was disciplining, disciplining faculty, disciplining staff, and creating, a, getting rid of redundancies. And they, so we expected them, and they did attempt to take every nasty managerial strategy to speed up the workforce and to get rid of redundancies uh, that they could. And they used the pandemic to do that. And so there's no reason to expect that they are going to stop with that strategy, whether we're talking about Rutgers, whether we're talking about Temple University or Penn State or the UC system or SUNY, right? And so that's the fight in front of us is a, a series of neoliberal managers who run our institutions and uh, their attempts to speed up the workforce. And so this brings me to the last goal that we'll ha- we have at Rutgers and I think we need to have uh, across the university, uh, across the nation, which is in our public institutions, in our public universities, we must fight for workers' councils that govern, that govern these institutions. Because we know that the people governing these institutions and running them now do not do it in the interest of the students, the parents, or the, the workers who make these universities run, or the states in which they're embedded. And so the only people that can reimagine higher ed, public higher ed in particular, that uh, speaks to uh, the states and the parents and the students and the workers is the workers and the students together. And so on the medium term horizon, we will fight over who governs our institutions. Very well said. And I, the last question, I hate to respond to what you just said was something so trivial, but the uh, chat is exploding about the ducks in the background. I don't know if you have any final words about the ducks. (laughs) Well, we all need to collectivize ourselves. And as you can see behind me, the ducks have collectivized themselves here and they are demanding a more just situation in, I'm in, I'm in on the Jersey shore. And so they're demanding uh, a very different situation for ducks down here. No more hunting. Wow. Radical. Um, 
Well, thank you so much, Todd, for coming on. I mean, you all, you're really doing great work, really kind of pioneering work in the labor movement in higher education. So thank you so much. I'm sure I'll see you in like a Zoom meeting probably next month or something. Uh, but thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Thank you, Jen. Uh, and it was great to follow Zizek. So that's fantastic. <laughs> thank you, Todd. Wow, Todd right. really, uh, he, he handled the ducks question like a pro. <laughs> yeah, I think he, he maybe he saw it coming. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. I would love yeah. uh, for Zizek to be here to comment on the ducks. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he would have a totally different interpretation. That would be like another 30-minute <laughs> uh, answer we'd have to deal with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that was a great talk, though. Great interview. Um, and, and like you mentioned um, at one point, you know, I, I think that sometimes when we think about like acad academic unions or grad student unions, you know, there's a little bit of it seems it seems kind of rarefied or like the academic world seems like not where our strategic focus should be. Um, but it's really great to hear that over at Rutgers, uh, uh, what they're doing, um, you know, organizing across both the professional workers and the blue collar workers as well. Um, and as you pointed out, you know, so-called blue collar workers or like university staff actually constitutes a huge portion of the people who work at a university. Um, and I think, you know, as, as you mentioned, they very frequently sort of go unnoticed or, you know, aren't really um, acknowledged as, you know, members of the university, but of course they are. Right. And I'll just add one anecdote from something I did recently. Um, you know, I, I've, helped volunteer in New York canvassing for a candidate for city council, Jasmine Kaur, who came in second place. She did really well. Um, it was her first time running. Um, so I went out with some DSA people to help. And, um, you know, on the doors, I found the thing that resonated the most with people, especially older people, um, a lot of them were skeptical of her age. She's younger and they asked about her experience. But what resonated them with the most was about fully funding CUNY, mm -hmm. which is a, it's a great working class institution in New York, a, you know, a, a very affordable community public university. And that really was the thing I found that on the doors, the issue that most people, you know, got excited about and actually more so older people who remember when it was when more was affordable. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just to say that, you know, I know sometimes on the show we kind of rag on um, <laughs> uh, academia, but I do think some issues, I think if they're framed the right way, actually do resonate a lot mm -hmm. with people. Mm -hmm. I also liked that we went from the French Revolution and Zizek to an actual, you know, real life, uh, modern day uh, worker campaign and then to ducks. So <laughs> good trajectory. Show, I mean, it has it all, the show. I mean, what more? I don't know why we're not up to a million views, but. Right. Yeah. It's beyond me. Anyway, um, again, I want to wish everybody a happy Bastille Day. Uh, please hit like and subscribe. Share this video if you liked it. Uh, like the video to get Zizek back for uh, October and talking about the Russian Revolution. Uh, and one last plug for Jacobin Magazine's Bastille Day special, where you can get an international subscription of the magazine for just $17.89 and a domestic subscription for $7.89. Uh, this is less, this is uh, more than half off in both cases. So get it. Well said. All right. Well, uh, good night, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your Bastille Day. And actually, we won't see you next week. We're off, FYI. But the week after that, we will be back. Uh, so good night. And until then. Good night. <laughs>